We have two readings today. The first reading is Deuteronomy chapter 19. When the Lord your God has destroyed the the nations whose land he is giving you, and when he has driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess. Build roads to them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. This is a rule concerning the man who kills another and flees there to save his life, one who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without malice or forethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and his head and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did not, since he did it to his neighbor without malice or thought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised on oath to your forefathers, and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command to you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk, in we- walk always in his ways, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, the elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. The judges must take a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And our second reading today is Matthew, chapter 5, 17 through 26. Do not think that I have come to you to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You have heard that it has been said to people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift in the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way with him, on, still with him on the way, or you may, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Uh, should we pray again as we come to, to God's word? Our Father, your word is a sword that pierces us. That's what you say, that is always true. But that sometimes feels particularly true today as we come to issues like death and like anger and feel your words speaking into them. Uh, some of us, all of us, feel vulnerable, feel exposed before your word. We praise you, we thank you that your spirit is here with us, that he who wrote these words in the first place is with us, knows precisely what each one of us needs to hear for our good. So Father, please would you protect me, would you guard me from saying anything uh, as I don't know the situations here that is unhelpful, is hurtful please would you help all of us to listen to listen to the spirit for the comfort we need from him the encourage we need perhaps the rebuke we need from him please would he be at work for each one of us this morning Amen Now it seems it's hard to judge these things at the time history will tell us yes or no but it does seem like we're standing at a moment in history when Western civilization is making decisions, is asking questions about life and death, that for two and a half millennia we just haven't felt the need to ask. So 2,500 years ago, Hippocrates wrote the Hippocratic Oath for Doctors, uh, a statement, a declaration by doctors. This is what we will do, this is what we won't do. And it includes this line, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but I will never use it to injure or wrong them. I will not give poison to anyone, though asked to do so, neither will I suggest such a plan. And for two and a half millennia, that statement, among others, in the, the oath, has been the basis of medical practice. It's a sentiment that was echoed in various declarations by the World Medical Association through the 20th century. But it seems like we can't take it for granted anymore. So you'll be aware that in July... Uh, Lord Falconer's bill on assisted dying was debated in Lords, a bill that would grant for doctors to give lethal medication to terminally ill patients who requested it. And the House of Lords split down the middle. 65 peers spoke in favour of the bill, 62 spoke against. So it seems like as a culture, we're asking questions that we haven't asked for two and a half millennia. We're asking in a way we just haven't for a long, long time what is the value of life? How bad is death? 
What are we allowed to do and not allowed to do? What do we have to do on the borders in between the two? Now, for Christians, whenever people, whenever a culture is talking about those sort of issues, serious questions about life and death, there's a chance for Christians to speak the good news of the Bible, to show the sense that the Bible makes of those issues, the hope that the Bible offers to people in the middle of those issues. And so this morning, that's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and let the Bible shape our thinking on the issues, with the hope that that will then shape our conversation, shape us talking with people around us. As we're asked the question, what do you think about this bill? Again, if you've been here, you'll know over the summer we're looking at the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, the, the summary really, these ten summary statements of the law that God gave to his people Israel before they went into their promised land. And today we're on number six, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And there's an outline on the back of your service sheet is where we're going to go. We're going to explore the commandment itself a bit, see its basis in the value of human life. Then we're going to think a bit about some implications for the assisted dying bill, how we think about that. But we're not going to stop there, because the Bible pushes this issue, this commandment, deeper into our hearts. The Bible takes it straight down to the issue of anger. So we're going to think about that, and then end by coming to Jesus again as the author of life. That's where we're going. Uh, The outline on the back might help. But uh, Deuteronomy 19 is where we're going to start. If you could find that again, if you've let it drop. On page 197, Deuteronomy chapter 19, where Moses unpacks this commandment, you shall not murder, gives more flesh on the bones of it. And I imagine you noticed it was read. It's a pretty brutal chapter, chapter 19. But as we go through it, I hope we'll see it shows how much God cares about life, human life that was made in the image of God has a value to God. It must be protected, and that's why this chapter is as brutal as it is in places. So let's jump in. Let's read from verse 1 of chapter 19. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he's given you, and when you've driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to them and divide them. Uh, divide into three parts the land your God is giving you as inheritance so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. Do you notice there are three times in those verses? The land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The land the Lord your God is giving you. So as we've said all the way through Deuteronomy, these are particular laws for a particular nation, a particular land at a particular time. The details of this chapter aren't going to map one-to-one onto our experience living as Christians in 21st century Britain. But the big principle of Deuteronomy 19 stands today. That's really what we're looking for. Okay, let's pick it up at verse 4. This is all concerning the man who kills another and flees there to one of these cities to save his life. One who kills his neighbour unintentionally without malice or forethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbour to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may come off and strike his neighbour and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he's not deserving of death since he did it to his neighbour without malice or forethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. Now, it's obvious those details don't map onto us one-to-one. In Britain, the police force does much of this work, keeping accused men and women safe from the relatives of a victim until there can be a fair trial. But look, verses 8 to 10 give us the reason why there are these cities, why there is this law. 
So if I say, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your forefathers and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you have to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you'll not be guilty of bloodshed. As all the way through this chapter, the issue is the protection of innocent blood. Protecting innocent blood. Someone who, uh, the, the family of someone who's been killed unintentionally, wants to kill in revenge. Protecting their blood is so important. You build these cities, you set them aside for this. People are safe when they're there. It is to protect innocent blood. And that's the issue as well in verses 11 to 13, where the same principle is applied in a different direction. Verse 11, but if a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults him and kills him, and flees to one of these cities, the eldest of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. Now, I realise that raises questions that we don't have time to address here. We could talk later. What does the Bible say and why about capital punishment? Again, these are laws particularly for this people in this land. But do you see the logic God gives to it? The reason? It is because, verse 13, you must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood. Someone who's killed someone else, who's shed innocent blood, he cannot be allowed to live in this land that God has given them. Because the blood he shed is so precious, so valuable. It is because life is valuable that God gives this law, that this guilt must be purged from out of the land, can't stay there. Actually, the rest of the chapter gets even more severe. So, uh, verse 14. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. That's probably there, slightly odd in this chapter, probably there because you've just divided the land up into these three bits with a city in each one where you're safe. So if you start moving around borders and boundaries, you're messing with people's access to justice and safety. Probably. Why that's there. But verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offence he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime... The two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. That same phrase again. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And you see again, the penalty there is so severe because human life, made in the image of God, is so valuable. So if I accuse you of a crime where the penalty, if you're found guilty, will be that you lose a hand and I'm lying, I lose a hand. If I accuse you of a crime where there's capital punishment and I'm lying, I lose my life. There's nothing else I can give, no other payment I can make to trade in for that life. There's nothing of equal value to human life. So I think, stepping back, chapter 19 as a whole, we can draw two conclusions about that sixth commandment, you shall not murder. 
The first is that you shall not murder, the way the NIV translates it, probably is the right way. Some older translations had you shall not kill, but it seems like you shall not murder is what's intended. Because the commandment isn't talking about the accidental manslaughter that's protected in chapter 19. And the commandment can't be ruling out the capital punishment that God commands in chapter 19 or the warfare that he describes in chapter 20. And chapter 19 is all about protecting innocent blood. And so the commandment is as well, we could rephrase it. You shall not intentionally shed innocent blood, or more succinctly as the NIV has it, you shall not murder. The commandment should be, you shall not murder. And the second conclusion to draw is just how seriously God takes this. So for the innocent, you build these cities, you have this system to keep them safe, to protect their blood, because shedding innocent blood matters so much. On the other hand, for the guilty, for those who have shed innocent blood, or even just try to shed innocent blood in court, by lying in court, they must be killed. Deuteronomy says there's no other payment they can make. Someone who's spilled innocent blood, their blood must be spilled. Again, particular laws for particular people, particular time and place. But the principle stands through the whole Bible. Human life made in the image of God is so valuable, so precious, that this chapter is as severe as it is. That's the first thing we need to see, the value of human life. It's the commandment, you shall not murder. And the first implication for us to think through is... How do we respond to this assisted dying bill? Or what are we going to say if people ask us what we think? Now, historically, Christians have always been opposed to any form of euthanasia or assisted dying, whether it's voluntary or not. And that's because the sixth commandment is never qualified in the Bible. There's never a a distinction, a greater or lesser warning if you kill, say, a man versus a woman, or an Israelite versus a, a foreigner, or an adult versus a child. Or, most relevant for this someone who's healthy versus someone who's sick. That distinction's never drawn in the Bible. There never seems to be a, an exemption for what we would call mercy killing. But, that's been the historic position of the church, but we need to admit the issues aren't straightforward. So recent advances in medical te- technology mean that the issues aren't straightforward medically, which I've realised clearly as I've tried to get my head around this this week. There's all sorts of issues and questions that even 50 years ago wouldn't have been questions because of the technology we now have. So maybe there's a particular issue or question that you want to say, well, what about this? What in this situation? Which we're not going to do from the front here. We can talk about later, or there are doctors in the room who would be able to think through and help you with that more if there's a particular issue you want to chase down. But medically, the issues aren't straightforward. And actually, biblically, the issues aren't straightforward. So in July, Lord Carey, in the Daily Mail, you may have seen, wrote an article saying that he'd changed his mind. For all his life, he'd been in the same position as the Church of England, kind of useful with his job as the Archbishop. Uh, But recently, he's changed his mind. He's now supporting Lord Falconer's bill. Now, Lord Carey, he's an evangelical. He's a good Bible man. He's a careful thinker. You can't just write him off. He has recognised, what many have recognised, that the issues are complicated. That exactly what it means to love your neighbour as yourself in the 21st century isn't always an easy decision. So as we talk about this, as we think about this, as we realise we're not clear what we think, or we are and there's someone in the church who disagrees with us, we want to be quick to listen 
and to show grace to each other. And of course we want to remember that there are people even in the room now who don't need answers to hard questions but just need our love and time and tears and meals made and lifts given. But with those caveats in place, I want to think for a few minutes about the three main reasons given for supporting a bill like this and then suggest some biblical concerns with those reasons. It's going to be brief, just a starter, but hopefully, I pray, a starter for thinking and conversations. So three reasons. The first one is the patient's choice. It's not for you or me or anyone else to judge what someone chooses to do with their life. Make it legal and let them make the decision. And I hope we can agree that that logic is at odds with what the Bible says. Our body isn't ours to do with as we choose. Life was made by God in the image of God. For the Christian believer, Paul says in Romans 6, that our body was bought by God at the cost of Jesus' blood. And so now the body is for the Lord. So no one has the right to take your life without God's permission. The Bible would say, you don't. Your doctor doesn't. But... The next two reasons, they're ways of saying, but surely there are situations where God would give his permission, where God would say, where he'd want us to end someone's life, where it's the loving thing to do, to give someone with a terminal disease, in sound mind, what it is that they're asking for. So the second reason is, surely it's, it's loving to relieve the burden, if that's what someone is asking for. So you can see this argument on the national level. Uh, With a a growing elderly population, the NHS has put an increasing amount of time and resources that could be put elsewhere into caring for uh, those who are elderly, increasingly disabled. Or you can see it on the family level. The dying mother who wants to end her life now because she can't bear the financial or emotional or time burden on her family. So if someone feels like a burden, if someone therefore wants to die, isn't the loving thing, many would say, to grant them that wish? I think it is worth just pausing to expose the logic that's underneath that. I think underneath that you have to say that some life is more valuable than other life. You don't have to say it that explicitly, but I think that is what's going on underneath. So it goes something like this. I used to be more valuable when my body was able or my mind was sharp or I could earn a living or I could care for my family, I used to be more valuable. But now I can't do those things. I'm less valuable. So much so that my life isn't worth living. So when I was, whatever it is, younger, fitter, healthier, more of a contributor, to kill me would have been wrong. I had the protection of law because to end my life when it was valuable is illegal and rightly so. But now that I'm not a contributor, now that I'm a burden, or I feel to be so, my life has less value and so it should be ended. I think that's the logic underneath, to say that some life is more valuable than others. And by contrast, when Galatians 6 calls the Christian community to bear one another's burdens, it seems like the Bible assumes that we'll be a burden to each other. At different times, in different ways, at different stages, it assumes that we'll be a burden to each other. We're meant to be dependent on others. To be human is to be dependent first on Jesus Christ and then on one another. So all of us are born needing help to feed ourselves, to wash ourselves, to dress ourselves and protect ourselves. 
And as much as we hate the idea, many of us will end life the same way, needing that same help. But our, our dependency on others is not a mistake. It is part of what it is to be human, and it is a gift of God to those we're dependent on. It gives them a chance to grow like Christ as they serve us. So we said three reasons. It's the patient's choice. Uh, secondly, isn't it loving to relieve the burden? But I think number three, for me, for many people, is where this issue gets hardest. Isn't it loving to end the suffering? So it wasn't a surprise when I read Lord Carey's article, the thing that got him thinking, eventually rethinking his decision on assisted dying, was seeing friends go through suffering at the end of their life. And of course, when we see people, especially those we're close to, going through suffering that we can't feel, we can't imagine, of course we ask, why would God do that? And mightn't God want us to end that, if we can, and if that's what the sufferer wants? The Bible doesn't give easy answers here. It doesn't say, this is what God is doing and why. It does assure us again and again and again that the love of God for any individual proven by Jesus' death on the cross is deeper and stronger and longer-lasting and more personal than ours would be. But it doesn't give easy answers. But I have found this week, as I've been reflecting on it, knowing that death isn't the end, it does help in thinking through this question. The Bible is crystal clear that death is not the end, a step into oblivion. It is going to meet God and starting life forever. That's part of the reason that the Bible forbids murder. Death is going to meet God as judge, and it is God the judge who gets to decide when it's time for someone to do that, not us. And I think that's where the Christian answer to these questions will be most different from the people around us, knowing that death isn't the end. So it may be, the Bible doesn't say this, this is speculating, it may be that the reason God keeps someone alive longer than we would choose to is so that they're more ready when the time comes to meet God, that most important moment of their life. It may be that for the Christian believer, God in his kindness and wisdom knows that he or she will experience a deeper joy, be able to experience a deeper joy forever in the new creation, having experienced just how rough life gets in this one. Like I say, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us those things. That's me wondering. But I do think that knowing that death isn't the end helps. It helps emotionally. And it helps us work through how to engage with these questions and issues. Now, look, like I said, that's just starting to scratch a very deep iceberg. So I hope that all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, will be able to keep thinking, keep talking about these issues, sharpening one another in our thinking, helping one another love more deeply those who are suffering. But now we're going to turn to Matthew 5. Uh, Matthew 5, if you've got that on page uh, 969, where Jesus takes this commandment and applies it directly to our hearts. Not the, the out there, every now and then issues around life and death, but the in here, everyday issues of anger. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 that anger brings just as much guilt before God as murder does. So we can pick it up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, 
that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says, excuse me, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is guilty, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, clearly, murder and anger have different consequences, and rightly, of course, they're treated differently by society, punished differently. But Jesus here isn't talking about circumstances in life. He's talking about God's judgment in verse 22. And he says God's judgment is just as serious for the angry as for the murderer. And to show how seriously he means that, we get these two pictures in the rest of the section, the temple and the court. So verse 23, the temple. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So you can imagine the scene. Uh, Our friend, let's call him... Uh, Colin Colin is walking into the temple and the temple at Jesus' time it is an astonishing building it's an astonishing building and everything about it is there to say God lives here this is a palace for God this is a throw behind that curtain that you can't even touch you can never go behind only one person can behind that curtain is the throne where God dwells That is what the temple is meant to say, every bit of it, every brick, the gold everywhere, the purple everywhere, the angels everywhere, decorated, not real ones, uh, everywhere. This is where God lives. You're coming to meet God. And so Colin's in the queue, he's got his sheep ready to offer a sacrifice, and here he comes. And it's a long queue, so he's got a while, he's standing there, he's daydreaming through the week, and he just remembers, uh, pops into his head last Thursday, when he was talking with a friend, and uh, got riled... The friend was right about something and Colin knew it but hated it and so kept arguing the point and eventually made a cutting comment that he knew the friend wouldn't be able to come back to and walked out and hasn't spoken to him since last Thursday. It just comes back into Colin's mind. I should probably do something about that at some point. And Jesus says, now, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Go and be reconciled to your brother. And Colin's thinking, are you serious? I'm here to meet God Jesus, I think you've met him. He's the one who made the universe. He's the one who's in charge of everything. I'm here to offer my sacrifice. Are you saying I walk out and leave him waiting? And Jesus says, yes. This is serious enough that you leave God waiting to deal with it. That's the picture of the temple. Uh, verse 25, 26 is the picture of the court. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. In that picture, God is the judge, and Jesus' point is that he won't be lenient. Uh, There is guilt in God's court for anger. So Jesus clear this is serious. But I imagine everyone reading this asks the question, why? How can anger be as serious as murder? How can it possibly matter that much? Now, it's worth saying, Jesus isn't doing anything new here. Deuteronomy 19 said it's not just killing someone, but trying to kill about someone, lying in court, that gives you the guilt of, of murder. And Jesus takes that one step further, that anger, that wanting to kill someone, bears the same guilt. Because that's what anger is. It is wanting someone else to be hurt. For myself, I cycle a fair amount in central London, and uh, a little while ago I noticed that when I'm stopped at a red light, 
and another cyclist zips up through the lanes and goes straight through the junction. I noticed a while ago that every time that happened, I would have a brief moment of pleasure imagining me or someone else taking a stick and shoving it through the front wheel so that it jams and they come straight over the handlebars. And I caught myself one time, sat at a red light as someone went past it. What is that? And I think it's not always that obvious, but I think that's what anger is. Someone has something we want. I want to be cycling straight through there, but for some reason I'm sat here and I want what they have and they have it and so I want to hurt them. It's when someone hurts our pride or damages our chances or wastes our time and we want them out of the way, we want them hurt. It's not as obvious as it was for me in that moment of realisation. But anger is wanting someone else hurt. And so Jesus says it is as serious in God's judgement as murder. Killing someone, trying to kill someone by lying about them, wanting to kill someone. They're the same judgment before God. And so if you are a Christian here this morning and there's something that you know a brother has against you, that's Jesus' issue in verse 23. If you remember that your brother has something against you, if there's another Christian who there's something you need to say to, can I urge you, before we come to church next week, can you make the first step to whatever it is, speak to them, pick up the phone, write an email. Jesus says this is important enough to keep God waiting. Anger is that serious. But of course, if you define the sixth commandment like that, like Jesus does, then all of us find ourselves guilty. As we need to finish, in the last three minutes, by coming back to Jesus. Jesus, the author of life. I'm going to read from Acts 3. You could turn there if you want. It's on page 1095. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Acts 3. Which, if you've been here in the home groups this year looking at Acts, you'll remember the story. Peter and John, they're going into the temple. They see by the side of the road a crippled beggar. Ask them for money. They don't have any. But Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And that's what he does. He gets up. He tests his ankles a bit tentatively. Then he starts walking. Then he starts jumping. Then he dances, singing into the temple, which causes quite a stir. A crowd gathers, and Peter has the chance to explain what's happened. And at the heart of his explanation, you get this in verses 15 and 16. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross, and he says, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you now see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to them. As you can all see. Just notice in those verses, Jesus offers life to the sufferer and Jesus offers life to the guilty. So first, life to the sufferer. Verse 15 says, Jesus was killed and then raised from the dead. And so now he has the power and freedom to give life to others. Jesus, the author of life, has received life from his Father and now can give it to everyone who has faith in his name. And did you hear how this healing is described? The man was made strong. Jesus has given him complete healing. This is the promise of the risen Jesus, the one who's been given life, who is the author of life, to everyone who is in him, following him, the promise is strength for those who are weak. The promise is complete healing for illness and pain. Now this guy gets it early as a sign, as a picture for us of what's coming. For Christians that is a promise, the other side of death. I was talking this week with a doctor who works in palliative care. And 
Uh, they told me the greatest privilege of their job is watching Christians in the final stage of their life. This doctor was a Christian and said it is astonishing watching Christians in the final stages of life, some of them going through unimaginable, awful situations and circumstances, but going through it again and again and again, bearing it with joy because they know that life is coming, that Jesus offers life, complete healing, strength to the sufferer. Jesus offers life to the sufferer, but also Jesus offers life to the guilty. So again, verse 15, he starts it, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. Deuteronomy 19 makes it clear how serious it is to kill those that God has given life to. But when humanity had the chance, it only took us 30 years to kill the author of life, to nail him onto a cross. No guilt that we've talked about this morning compares with this, that humanity collectively bears. We took God, who'd given us life, and we killed him. But Jesus offers life even to those who've killed the author of life. That's what Peter goes on in this sermon today. For everyone who repents, who turns to God, verse 19 says, their sins will be wiped out. Even the sin of seeing the author of life and nailing him to a cross. We had earlier in Deuteronomy 19 the cities of refuge, the places you went to and were safe if someone was after your blood. Numbers 35 gives us one more detail about those cities. It says that if you're in that city and the high priest over the people dies, you can go home. You're safe, you're free. Because if the high priest, the one who represents everyone in Israel before God, that was his job, to represent the people before God, when he dies, when his blood is spilt, it's as good as if yours has been. And so there's no more guilt, there's no more shame, there's nothing left. You're free to go home in safety. And Acts 3 says that Jesus, the author of life, and our great high priest has died. He has shed his blood for us. There is guilt for murder. There is guilt for anger. But Jesus has died that death. His innocent blood was spilt so that yours never has to be, so that when we come to him, we receive not death from him, but life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We praise you for the dignity, the value, the preciousness of what you've given us, life in your image. We praise you for your your kindness to us, the trust you've given us, that we represent you, that we show the world that you reign. And Father, we pray for us, and we pray for our country, as conversations are had that haven't been had for a long time, as decisions have made that we haven't had to make for a long time. Please would you grant wisdom, please would you grant grace and love. Please would we be quick to listen to each other, quick to love one another. But please would you instill in us a conviction that whatever issue we're talking about, whether it's what's in the news, whether it's what's in our hearts, please would you instill in us a conviction that this is the value of life. 
that you made it, that you gave it, that it's in your image, that Jesus died for us. Amen.